Hey everyone, Samuel here. I just had a couple of quick updates before we started the episode. First, I wanted to say that over the past couple weeks, we've had some audio difficulties. We're looking into our mics and uh, whether we are recording properly and stuff like that. But I just figured out how to fix all of that. It took a couple hours on YouTube, stuff like that, but I have it figured out. So um, as always, we're a work in process, you know, Um, we're working on how to do these things correctly so that we can do it better in the future. So um, I wanted to say that I have remastered LaShonda's last episode and kind of put it just into this episode right here. So this is a double parter and it's edited so you don't hear those sharp like <gasps> or um, uh, slurred S's or anything like that. Um, then uh, I also, at the time of this posting, have remastered Unpack That, Growing Up Again, and CR, The Difficult Conversations, which are our past couple episodes. So you can go back and re-listen to those um, if you had some trouble with um, hearing us correctly or uh, getting through some of those audio difficulties. So honestly, I'm pretty excited. It took a while to figure out, so I'm glad that it's done. If you are looking for counseling and you're in the central Ohio area, go ahead and go to jhrcounseling.com. That is Julie Richards, my mom's practice. And you can see what sort of services she offers, figure out her hours, contact her, all that sorts of stuff. Um, If that's your sort of thing, like I said, go on, head on over to jhrcounseling.com. The other thing I wanted to say was that we have uh, been discussing moving to a every other week type model so we can keep this sustainable. Um, I'm going to class full time and my mom runs her private practice that I just talked about and Sarah works as well. So we are going to perhaps move to an every other week type system. Um, uh, We have a ton of episodes out already. We have over 40 episodes. I'm not sure we're up to 50 yet. So um, head on over, listen back to those. There is a lot of good material that's worth revisiting. And with podcasts, you know, you have to hear it a couple times before it really sinks in. But we're always considering what is sustainable, how can we keep this long term? And that is the system that might work for us for right now. So um, expect the next episode up in two weeks. So you can um, expect that up on August 4th. And I'll see you then. I hope you enjoy this episode. It is so great, so deep, so mind-blowing in a lot of ways. So um, I'll talk to you soon. everybody, welcome to Community Roots, a place where we gather in community to talk about mental health so we can travel the journey of life together. I'm Julie Richards. I'm Sarah Wakefield. And we are off the beaten path today with LaShonda Sugg. Welcome, LaShonda. Thank you so much for having me, Julie and Sarah. We're so glad that you are here. So wherever you want to lead us, we want to go. So we're just... Um, 
excited to, to have you with us. And we've already been, for our listeners who are just joining us, we've already had a really great debriefing. LaShonda is someone who is trained in PMLD's model, which is something that I have often brought up on our episodes and teaching people about. But um, we would just love to hear from you in any part of your journey, your story, what you're passionate about, and have a great conversation. <laughs> That's so interesting when it's left so open. I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, I'm passionate about so many things. Uh, what does that look like? You know, I think at the at the base of my passion is um, is the desire for people to know they can heal. Like that, that is it from these experiences that we've had. Um, and so I'm a trauma specialist or a trauma specializing therapist. And I think something that um, is very, very important to me to understand that the generational cycles of trauma and challenges and hardships that that their families have gone through, their communities have gone through, they, they, we are empowered to kind of change course on those things, but it happens in community. And it, it, it happens when we can have an understanding of the hows and the whys of things. So much of trauma is the, the story we make up around why something happened, which is why two people, three people, four people can experience the same thing and not have the same impact. It, it may not have the same impact in their life because there are four different stories about why it happened. And so I think really being able to explore the whys we've been making up and the narratives that we've been given and have given ourselves is uh, a lot of what healing from trauma looks like. But I'm also passionate about um, calling systemic oppression trauma and being able to address it as such. Um, so it is a systemic issue for sure. Um, but what I love very much about Resma Menicum, who wrote the book, My Grandmother's Hands, is he identifies it as a central nervous system issue, a collective central nervous system issue, which to me is just like, yes, it's putting into words these things. And I'm like, I, I didn't say it that way, but yes, like we, this lives in our body. It's in the, the body of our country. It's in the body of all of us as citizens and participants and non-citizens and <laughs> people who don't people don't want to be citizens. It's just, it's, it's coursing through the blood of this nation. And so I'm passionate about that and, you know, a lot of things. So, um, so I'm curious about the, the idea and just dialogue maybe a little bit further about the idea that we can heal trauma. I think that's kind of revolutionary for people that maybe initially trauma starts off sounding like something unfamiliar or maybe it's too ominous or scary or deep. And that's one of the, my catchphrases that I often say in my teaching is we get to heal trauma. <laughs> like, I love that you can have generations of um, PTSD and uh, trauma history, but we can change that trajectory and we can heal. And so as you conceptualize that, like through the lens of um, wanting to bring systemic change, how do we kind of wed those ideas together of we're healing trauma and we're bringing systemic change? What would that even look like? I, I would like to interject just really quickly for our listeners. Um, can we define trauma? Because I think a lot of times this nebulous idea of trauma 
you know, it's hard to pin that on yourself or to give yourself that um, agency that you have experienced trauma. Um, would you mind just taking a, just a brief moment to define that? Yes, actually, Sarah, that's, that's where I was going to start. I was going to say, let's first define how I'm using the term so that we're all on the same page. And for me, trauma is not an event or a series of events, but it is the resulting worldviews, belief systems, and behaviors from said event or events. And so I think sometimes when people think that trauma can't be healed because they're stuck on the event or the thing that happened, and we can't go back and undo that. So since we can't time travel and make those things not happen, I think a lot of people feel like they're stuck. But when we view trauma as our body's response to adverse experiences, then we start to have maybe a little bit of hope and maybe some empowerment to say, okay, my body is still with me. So I still have the grand opportunity to change some things. And so the, the trauma lives in our body. It is our startle response. It's the elevated heart rate. It's how we move into a state of immobility. And it's activated through our senses. We can see something. We can smell something. We can taste something. We can hear something. We can sense it on our skin. And that triggers this experience of remembering, not with the part of our brain that says, oh, this is my birthday, and this is my phone number, that's our explicit memory, but it activates our implicit memory. So I often, when I teach and train, and even when I'm doing my therapy sessions, I talk about our um, mental library. It just made sense for me that every single experience we've had puts a book on the shelf in our mental library. And this isn't holding, again, the cognitive details of it, but it's holding all of the senses, the smells and the sights and the, the how we sensed it on our skin and the taste. And all of that is building this huge library. And every experience we come in contact with is weighed against the mental library because the brain's top three priorities are to keep us alive, to keep us safe and help us avoid pain. And so when we encounter this daily activity, there is a part of our brain specifically working to say, is this safe? How do I know this is safe? It's not just enough for it to be not safe. So sometimes people, when we're talking about safety, because I want to be clear, safety is the foundation of healing. It is the foundation of healing trauma. It is going to be the foundation of shifting oppression, safety. But it's not enough for a threat to be absent in order for someone to feel safe. So we're not talking about being safe. We're talking about feeling safe. And our brain is constantly surveilling our environment, looking for cues of safety. So I'll, I'll share with you an experience that, um, that my, my, my husband and I had about a month ago. We were driving to uh, near Dayton to do a recorded interview with um, the pastor of Southbrook Church. And it wasn't going to be at the church. It was going to be at his home. And so we were driving. My husband was driving. I was in the passenger seat. And we started to get to a place where we would see like these, like every so often on each side of the street, there would be three American flags 
kind of all put together and then you drive some more. So it, it, it felt like it was kind of a community thing. You know, you knew you were in this community because every so many feet, you were going to drive past these three American flags on each side. And what was so interesting is as we started to drive through them, we both noticed our bodies doing something. There was something in our bodies that were not feeling safe. And I love talking. I want to talk about this because there is such a marriage for a lot of people in our country to the flag, to the American flag. And the mental library, it means that my experiences have gone into my mental library and other people's experiences have gone into theirs. So I encounter a lot of people who are very patriotic. They hold the flag at very high esteem and it, it means a lot to them when they feel people are disrespectful of the flag. Well, when I lived on the east side of, well, yeah, the east side of Cincinnati, um, my son played football, youth football, and we would have to travel to nearing counties that are east of the county I live in for some of the games. And man, you would be amazed. This was right around 2016, and you would be amazed at how many Confederate flags we passed while we were in these Eastern counties. But you know what, for, uh, what we always noticed for so many of those Confederate flags were flying right above them? The American flag. They came as a combination. And so my body held all of that information in, right? It held all of it in. So we had to establish rules for our family. The rules were no more than four turns, no more than two cornfields, no more than one Confederate flag. Isn't that crazy that we still made a rule for ourselves that we could see at least one Confederate flag and still keep going? <laughs> These neighborhoods were not safe for my black family. They didn't feel safe. And so as I'm driving in the middle of the day up near Dayton, and I'm passing these flags, what is my body doing? My body is remembering those previous experiences that we had in those Eastern counties. And its response to those flags happened well before it made it to the cognitive part of my brain. Before I could make up a story about what was happening, it was happening in my body. And so I think this is important for people to understand because the, the reactions and the experiences that we have, they come from our body first. I think that's so important, LaShonda, what you're saying, because for those of us that are trying to heal trauma, which um, I hope everybody finds a time in their journey that that's a lifelong thing we can all do and become more aware of our stories. Sometimes you hear the phrase like, what are you noticing in your body? And there's this disconnect at first, I think, because when we are very cognitive and we know story as being an event or a fact, and there's not the integration yet, there's not the my body's actually trying to tell me something about feeling safe or not feeling safe, or it's trying to communicate to me that tightness, the tension, the something is not okay kind of feeling and to be aware of that, that that's actually connecting us further into our story. And that's a little bit hard to make sense of at first. Like it almost feels like so different than um, 
maybe talk therapy is sometimes considered, here's my story. Let me tell you what happened. But there's not that connection and the integration of what's happening with body, mind, soul, spirit, all of that combined. No, I mean, that's dead on. And I I think the thing I want to make clear is this is happening inside of every single person who is alive. The difference is I was aware of what was happening. When people are not aware of what's happening, that's when our brain has to grab the most convenient narrative that it can. And so sometimes a convenient narrative is the one that's in close proximity in time. So if you have children or work with children, you've probably experienced this. Like I said, I have three children and I could, one of my kids can quote unquote, wake up on the wrong side of the bed, right? Just kind of be grumpy all day. And then well into the afternoon, <laughs> one, one of their siblings takes a toy of theirs and they have a full out meltdown you go to that child, you try to help them regulate, you rock them. Shh, it's okay, it's okay. Hey, what's going on? And that child said, she took my toy. And you're like, okay, that just happened though. What about the other six hours of the day? You know, you're like, this is not why this is happening. It's not just because she took your toy. You recognize maybe as an adult that this was just the kind of straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, that there's more under there. But it's not like the child was lying to you. They didn't make up the story. And then you say, well, no, that's not it. What else is going on? And they're like, she took my toy. And you're like, come on, so we can get frustrated. That's not all that's going on, tell me. The child's not lying. They just, their brain gave them the most convenient narrative. This is the thing that happened. Sometimes the most convenient narrative is the one that has been repeated the most. And we will kind of gravitate towards that. So, you know, I have a story, I have a niece, um, and she had gone through a lot in her life and she had recently lost a parent and I wanted to send her to camp. Um, and so I found a camp that she could go to and, um, when it got close to time to go to the camp, she did not want to go. So backstory is um, she struggled with enuresis and those who aren't familiar, which is involuntary urination, often called bedwetting, okay, though she was a teenager. And so when it came time close to get to the camp, she decided she didn't want to go. Well, I recognized that it probably had something to do with that. And as I began to talk to her and saying, hey, I'm wondering if this is the reason why. And she said, yes. And I said, I think there are things we can do. I'll contact the camp leaders, like we can work around this. And she was brave, she went to the camp. And so when I picked her up after the week, um, we were riding back and I asked her how all the camp went and she said it was good. And I asked her about the enuresis and she said, I, I didn't have an accident the whole week, which one is telling in and of itself because you don't control that. And that tells me how safe or unsafe she felt at home. Totally different story though. And what I did was I asked her though, I said, tell me, sweetie, why do you think you're struggling with wetting the bed? And she said, um, because I'm lazy and it broke my heart. She didn't believe she was lazy, but that was the only narrative her family had given her. You lazy, you don't wake, just this whole thing. So she internalized that narrative. And because she had no other options of what it could be, she just repeated the one that had been given to her, even there, though there was a part of her that didn't believe it. 
that's a convenient narrative. And so I think so many of us are kind of living out our lives, having trauma responses. And sometimes we call it different things, spidey sense, intuition, discernment. Sometimes we don't call it anything and we just know, or we just, we'll, we'll say, mm, I don't like her. I don't, I don't like him. No, I don't, I don't like that place over there. I don't feel comfortable. That's a convenient narrative. I don't like, you know, or why are they making that face? They, they don't like me. All of these are convenient narratives when the reality is our body is responding in a way that it hopes will keep us safe, will help us survive. And when we can connect with our bodies to learn the language of our body, then we can have more full awareness. And the key at that point is then to help our brain differentiate between actual threat and perceived threat. What my husband and I were able to do in the car is realize that while my body felt threatened, we were able to kind of take some deep breaths and re-narrate that story to say, I appreciate you for trying to keep me safe. And right now, it's not a real threat. But thank you for bringing my awareness. This is what I'm saying to my body. <laughs> thank you for bringing that awareness to me because, man, without you, I wouldn't make it. Thank you for letting me know when I might be in danger. And I think if people can lean into having that kind of relationship with their bodies, then we will stop enacting so much of our trauma out on other people and ourselves. Samuel has often talked about, and we did, I think even the episode that we just recorded of Community Roots and talking about the amygdala and that it's there to keep you safe and it's trying to protect you. So sometimes you can kind of, coach and talk to your, your amygdala to say, I've got this one. I see you. It's okay. I hear you. I know you're, you're worked up right now, but I'm going to take good care of you. I'm going to keep you safe. And, and that's a good, I think, working relationship with your body to have that awareness of I'm feeling really activated right now. Something is really setting me off and I don't know what that is. And like you mentioned with, um, being able to say, is this a real threat? Is this a perceived threat? One thing I'm curious about is what do we do whenever someone is so unsafe in their own body? Like they're having so much reactivity to, it could be stress, it could be depression, it could be anxiety, it could be physical ailments where likely trauma is underneath all of it. But when you're trying to help someone get in touch with their body and listen to their body. And the only thing that their body is doing is giving them warning, 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 danger, 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 panic attacks, overwhelm. How do you help transition into your body even being a safe place you can listen to? Because everything feels unsafe. Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. I think a couple of things that I try to do with clients. One is easing them into this process of, of their body. And so we may say, I want you to, I might say, I want you to focus on the toe next to your baby toe. Like just notice that toe, right? What's it doing? How's it feel? How does it engage with the world? Like it's a very underappreciated and under acknowledged part of the foot, right? <laughs> it, it's not even one of those that gets stubbed every now and then, like it doesn't even get that honor. And, and what led me to this is I actually broke that toe. So one, broken toes suck because there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> and I, at one point I did a lot of traveling for work. And so 
you say in so many different hotel rooms that they all start to blend together. I decided that I was going to take that trip to the bathroom in the dark and didn't notice something that was there. And oh, it hurt oh, so bad. Yeah. And it wasn't until that toe was broken <laughs> that I began to appreciate it. And so I decided I don't want things to have to break before I begin to appreciate them. So I think easing people into this process sometimes is let's not start with your heart that has been broken so many times. Mm -hmm. Let's start with, you don't even start with your shoulders that carry so much weight. Let's start with your shins. Like, let's start. If you could just, what is your shin feeling right now? If you could give it a color, shape, or size, what color would you give it? And as people start to recognize their physical bodies, transitioning into what am I feeling in my body? That's a hard question until you get used to it. And when people have been disconnected from their bodies, you know, there's no shame in that. So I start with, how do you know when you have to go to the bathroom? Do you know when you have to go to the bathroom? Yes. Okay. All right. Fair. Hey, I'm just asking. Now that you know when you have to go to the bathroom, can you differentiate between when you have to urinate and when you have to defecate? Well, yeah. Okay. If you gave each of those a color, shape, and size, what would they be? Would they be different from each other? I start with the parts that they already know. How do you know when you're hungry? Right? What, how do you, how do you, yes, you're hungry. You're saying that, but how do you know? What part of your body is telling you that? And what does it feel like? So I think easing people in where they are is important. And so that's kind of those abstract things. Another thing that I like to do is I like to tell people about my table. So I want you to imagine the most beautiful, biggest kitchen of your dreams. I know mine. I exactly what it looks like. It is not the kitchen I have right now, but let me tell you, <laughs> love this kitchen and this huge island with a table off to the side. So it's like this huge peninsula and there are chairs set around this huge peninsula. And each one of those chairs is for every part of me. And there are empty chairs, some empty chairs, because there are parts of me that I know I haven't fully made contact with. And so what I've had to understand is that every part of me gets a seat at the table. How I came to this conclusion is because um, I am a people-pleasing shapeshifter in recovery. And so I learned how to be whoever I needed to be whenever I needed to be it. And part of that people-pleasing was Shonda was happy. Oh my goodness, you're so happy. She's so, she smiles so much. Nothing gets her down. Like just happy. I smile. So when things like fear, resentment, rejection, <laughs> rage, when those things would start to like pop up, I would squash them down as far as I could, push them back as far as I could, because that did not fit the narrative that I was trying to bring across. None of this was conscious, by the way. I didn't sit up and dream this. This is just how I engaged with the world based on my own developmental and relational trauma. And so what I started to notice, though, is those things I was trying to um, suppress felt like they were getting stronger and louder. And it's like the kid in the grocery store that's having the full out tantrum. And everyone is looking like, oh, my God, they're either judging a kid or the parent or both. <laughs> when the thing is that child, very few children go to straight out tantrum first. There were signs, signals, and warnings before the tantrum 
that that gave indication that they they weren't regulated or they were losing regulation. So what I realized is my emotions that I considered bad or negative were tantruming. And they would get really big and I couldn't control them. And I would try to scoop, try to make them stop. And I wasn't winning and it wasn't effective. So then I realized, what are you trying to say? Fine, I'll listen. <laughs> and once I started to listen to what those parts of me were trying to communicate, then the tantrums became fewer, farther in between. Once those parts of me truly believed that I would listen to what they had to say, they could talk to me and they could communicate because every part of me was trying to accomplish the same thing. We got to stay alive. We got to stay safe. We want to avoid pain. And even if that led me to more pain, the goal was to help me avoid it. And so I learned to assemble my table <laughs> to say, all right, everybody come to the table. But the rule is you only get to talk when you're at the table. Why? Because you're surrounded by every other part of me that can give you support. And so I no longer view emotions or certain parts of myself as good or bad. They just are. And they're trying to communicate and they're trying to point me in the direction of something they want me to know. And when I take those value judgments away, right, wrong, good, bad, and instead they just are, that's the practice of mindfulness. How do I observe my experience in non-judgment? Then I realize, okay, this is what you're trying to communicate to me. And it doesn't mean that I have to make decisions based on rage or based on fear or based on resentment, but it's there for a reason. And when I start to listen to the lessons they're trying to make me aware of, then I have this kind of holistic experience. That means I don't have to only pretend that I'm full of joy and love and happiness. No, sometimes life sucks <laughs> and that's okay. And I don't have to fix it or solve it. I just need to know that it's okay that that is the experience. And I feel like if we can help people establish their own version of a table where they can allow every part of themselves to be real and they can start walking this journey of authenticity, then the notion of healing trauma doesn't seem so far-fetched or so foreign um, because they're empowered to just kind of have those experiences and know that their body is collaborating to keep them alive, even if it's painful. When you are trying to take your body from this fight, flight, slash, uh, like heightened state of arousal, um, I think is how Julie has mentioned it before of, you know, outside this window of tolerance um, to the table. Um, how would you? recommend or, or, or encourage people to create that table. So are you, ta you know, to start that discussion, are you saying, you know, find a place to meditate, um, carve out an afternoon? What would be the first step to getting your table together? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. Um, I, I do think I'm gonna take the cop out answer. It's different for each person. <laughs> no, but it's true. And I and so some suggestions that I have for <laughs> that is um is is we begin with this idea of awareness. So many times I encounter people who know they're feeling something, 
and they don't know what that thing is. So I use um, the, a feelings wheel uh, for people. And I also have um, a list of words that describe sensations, bodily sensations. And so if you are one of those people or know people who when you say, how are you doing today? Good. And then I would say, well, you know, well, good's not a feeling. You know, how are you feeling? Good. What does that mean? So sometimes people just have a lack of awareness of the vocabulary to express what their experience is. You know, they don't have words like shiver, hollow, weighty, prickly. They don't have those words to describe what they're feeling. And then they don't have words like disappointed, rejection, rejected, embarrassed. They don't have those words to describe this experience. So I think a good step is starting to build vocabulary and an awareness that there are things beyond happy, sad, mad. You know, there are things besides cold, hungry. Um, how do you know you're hungry? What, what is it in your belly? What feeling is that? And so I think if we can increase people's awareness of vocabulary, they just feel less stuck with describing their experience or recognizing their experience. And then as they develop that vocabulary, helping them lean into the mindful practice of, it just is. If it's embarrassment that I feel, but then I think, so how do I make it go away? <laughs> then that becomes more difficult. How do we just lean into that, that felt embarrassing? How do I know it was embarrassing? Um, because I felt myself cave inward. I felt myself getting smaller. Okay, let's breathe into that and let's just exhale. Okay. When we set up this, this, this practice of, I can feel a thing, I can experience a thing and not die. The brain is like, oh, oh, okay. Hey, we didn't die. <laughs> That's good. Cause it's always looking for, are we going to die? And so when we can name that thing and we can then say, this is what I experienced and okay. Okay. is one of my favorite words. Doesn't have to be good. It's just, okay. It is what it is. And I think a lot of people, cause I definitely felt this way. If I didn't think it and I didn't say it, then it would go away. No, I'm not angry because I'm trying not to think angry thoughts and I'm not saying I'm angry out loud. So I can't be angry. When I realized that my and a, a name didn't make that thing go away in my body. It's like, well, let's just name it then if it's going to be here anyway. So I think those are some beginning steps that are helpful. I also recommend, I visualization is so important because our brain does not know the difference between memory, reality, and imagination. It is like all the same thing to the brain. How do we know this? If you've ever had a dream, when you've been being chased or falling and you wake up and you're short of breath, you might even be sweating. Were you running or falling? No, you were, you were dreaming. But because your brain thought that you were doing those things, it mobilized the body to do whatever it would do if you were doing those things. And so I think this is super, super important for people who have a tendency to ruminate on negative things. As you're ruminating on negative things, your brain is like, uh-oh, this is, this is happening again. And so it, it, it mobilizes your body to do whatever it needs to do to keep you safe in that environment. And that is the difference between 
traumatic memory and just the other memories that go to the memory part of our brain. The memories that go to the memory part of our brain are kind of, you know, oh yeah, this is what I did on my 21st birthday. If it was the best day of your life on that day, 10 years later, you'd be like, yeah, it was kind of fun. And if it was the worst day of your life, 10 years later, you're like, yeah, it wasn't that great. <laughs> it loses its edges. It loses intensity. And it, it becomes more of this cognitive thing of this is what I did. But traumatic experiences don't go to the memory part of your brain. They live on your central nervous system. So when it gets activated, it's like you're in it in that moment. So part of our recovery is being safe in our bodies right now by allowing our brain to understand, yes, it feels like this is what's happening again, but through taking deep breaths, through grounding myself in my five senses to look around the room and see what I see and what do I smell and what do I hear and uh, eating a peppermint so I can taste something or whatever that, whatever it is to ground you on your senses, you begin to help your brain know, wait, I'm actually right here in the present. Oh, okay. So visualizations are important. So when I talk about my table, I see my table. I know exactly what it looks like. If I could draw better, I'd draw you my table. <laughs> so sometimes I suggest for people to visualize that. If there is a part of you that you're working with, uh, give it a color. Can you, if it had a shape, if it had a size, is there an image? So that as we're kind of working through um, these things, whether it's through self-talk or whether it's through whatever form, as we visualize it, it helps. You know, because Julie talks about PS model all the time, my inner children, the ones specifically that I've done work around, I have a three-year-old, a four-year-old, a nine-year-old, a 14-year-old, and a 17-year-old. And I know what they're wearing. They wear this, they're like a cartoon. So they wear the same thing all the time. They don't change clothes, but I know what they're wearing. Um, and so when I'm talking to that little child in me who gets activated because she feels alone or she feels like she's done something wrong or that she can't control what happens to her body, I, I can see them when I'm thinking these thoughts of you're okay, you're safe, you haven't done anything wrong. I can visualize them. And why that's important is because my body starts to respond as if some loving adult has come to that child and wrapped their arms around her and said she's going to be okay. And I, I, that's the power of our mind. And I think that we can use that to heal. And that's so transformational for people that might feel, you know, we have that negativity bias that we can get caught in those ruts of just everything hurts, everything feels bad. I can't find anything that is okay. And how do you transition, but little bit by little bit to have that awareness of things that are okay or that I can see something that's a little bit more neutral. It doesn't have to all be good, bad, and strong, you know, extreme emotion. I can just find something that's neutral and start with that and kind of work the way out of that negativity, rumination, that that pit that people can kind of feel stuck. Absolutely. And I think that Specific to, I'll say, therapy. Therapy, therapeutic relationship is not the only relationship by far that can do this. But what I appreciate about the therapeutic relationship and being a therapist is creating the atmosphere for those emotionally corrective experiences, those physically emotional experiences. It's being with a person who begins to cry 
and I get this a lot. They'll say, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh my God, I'm sorry. Like, this is so weird. I, I never cry. And so one of the first things I'll say is, well, chances are you don't cry because you don't feel safe enough to cry. If you're crying right now, you must feel safe. So what is it right now that's helping you feel safe? They want to give me credit for it. I feel safe with you. And I say, that's awesome. Let's talk about what it is about me that helps you feel safe. Why is that important? Because this is not a relationship that's going to last forever. But I want you to know how safe feels in your body so you know what to expect from other relationships. I use my office as an example. And I say, you feel safe with me, but you feel safe in this place. So let's use our five senses. What helps you feel safe? And they'll say, well, the colors. The colors in your office are warm. Yeah. Okay, what else? And I go through each sense. What do, you, what do you hear? And it's, well, you always have music playing. And I say, yeah, if I was playing like hardcore rap or hardcore rock and roll or heavy metal, you can like that music all you want to, but it would feel out of place. <laughs> and you would be like, whoa, wait. So it was something that was soothing. What else? Tell me more. You know, I always have snacks and water. Even if people choose not to use them, they're available. What about smells? I'm always diffusing a combination of essential oils. And I say, yeah, that invites you in. If you walk in my office and you smell gasoline, whoa, <laughs> your body would go, hold on. Why is this happening? And so I was aware when I created my office space that I had to be intentional about all five senses to create a feeling of safety. My clients have to feel safe. That's the majority of the work. By the time I say something to them, whatever I say doesn't matter. If we're in the middle of a house that's on fire, I can be the most therapeutic person in the whole wide world, but that's not gonna help you feel safe if the building is burning. And so creating safety for people so that they can heal, has less to do with the words we're using. And it has to do with what is the physical environment around them? Can they feel safe in that environment? And that is, that is very key. So when people get there and I say, I'm sorry, one, you never ever have to apologize. And then I'll just allow them to cry. And when they're done, we may talk about the fact that, you know, growing up, uh, crying was viewed as weakness and they were never allowed to do it. And I don't have to talk them out of that. That's their reality. But what I might say is, do you feel embarrassed right now? Well, a little bit, but not as embarrassed as I normally do. Okay. And just okay. I don't have to do, I don't have to say anything else. They had an experience that said, I cried in front of, some, in front of somebody and I didn't die. Like I, I, I didn't die. And that begins to be that experience. Then people can come in and tell you something that they've been ashamed of. You know, the number of times as therapists we hear, I've never told anyone this. And then when they tell you and you say, thank you so much. And it wasn't met with judgment and, oh my God, oh, you did that? Who does that? When all of that is absent, <laughs> they're like, oh my God, I just said that. And I didn't die. As a matter of fact, I felt seen. Oh my God, you, you're still looking at me. Sometimes I will ask a person to look at me looking at them. Can you just look at me for a second while I look at you so that you can see that my face hasn't changed, that you still have value, and that I still care about you, even after I heard all of that? For some people, that is like, what? They, they felt judged their whole lives. And so we can create these corrective experiences 
as people in relationship with one another, not because we have a therapist license, not because we're degreed, but because we're human beings who really care about being empathic and helping people heal. And so I think that's super important. I honestly don't even remember which question I was answering, but I still feel like it was relevant. (laughs) (laughs) And in essence, that's the foundation of systemic change is this being able to have safety and connection with our bodies and with each other and being able to hear and support and listen. I think those are foundational things that can start to bring some change, some healing. And recognizing that we all have value, that the person that's standing across from you or standing next to you has value. And I I think that is missing from this as well. It's so important. And that's because value is missing from so many. So this idea of inherent worth, I have value simply because I draw breath. So many of us were not taught that in our family systems and our social structure. Instead, we were taught, well, if I want to be loved and have value, then here's what needs to happen. I need to perform. So I need to do good. I need to excel. I need to achieve. Or I need to have things. When I have things, then I'm loved when I look a certain way. So because acceptance and love have been so conditional, for so many people, they then only really know how to give conditional acceptance and conditional love. So then we go back to the most convenient narrative, which is the one that is perpetuated and given um, the entire time. And what is that narrative to marginalize communities? When we actually take a moment and think individually, you know, what has culture and society told me about Black people? What has it told me about Native Americans? What has it told me about Latinx people? What has it told me about people in the LGBTQ community? What has it told When we start to just kind of look at that, that narrative that's been given, it's hard to give people, to assign value to people when structures and institutions have continuously said and demonstrated they don't have it. Um, you know, I, I love Hamilton, the musical, have loved it for a long time. That was actually my graduation present. Like we went to Chicago, we saw it. So when it came out on Disney plus, it's like, yeah, sorry. So like three times that weekend, we're watching it. And, um, I, I really just honed in on different parts at different times. And it was so interesting when, um, when, um, yeah, I don't even remember the name of the song, but when they, when Angelica was saying, you know, and when I meet Thomas Jefferson, I'm going to convince him to include women in the sequel, right? When, when the constitution said, you know, all men are created equal. And what I began to kind of ponder on about that statement is the forefathers meant exactly what they said. They exclude women's exclusion was intentional. Um, men are created equal. It, it wasn't a, a mishap. It was, they were very intelligent men, very intentional. They started a country, <laughs> okay? And then when we think about the fact that yet they are fighting for freedom and they have slaves. And then I thought, you know, people over the 4th of July and there, there was Juneteenth and then the 4th of July and all of these things. And it's, you know, how can you say all men are created equal if, if you didn't consider black men free or black people free? Well, then we got to say, well, what's under that narrative? They meant what they said. 
It's just that black men weren't people. They were property. They were animals. And so that is a narrative that is woven into the very fabric in the existence of this country. That black people were not human. So they didn't need to purposely be excluded. They were excluded by very nature of not being human. That is a narrative that has informed every decision that has been made on institutional and systemic levels. So when we start talking about creating safety to shift narratives and move to anti-oppressive states, we have to understand that for some people in this country, the country itself is unsafe. Breathing this air is unsafe. And so we got a lot of work to do. And part of the, the frustration that I meet during these conversations is that people want to take a very systemic, institutional conversation and turn it interpersonal. Well, I never, I would never call someone that. I don't, but okay, you have to step beyond yourself, three steps back, and we have to look at the system that is at play. And I think if people, specifically white people, would be able to divorce themselves from the narrative that white equals good, um, it is whiteness equals goodness. And the narrative that flows from that is, I am a good person. Well, why are you a good person? Well, that's what the narrative says. And so many people, so many white people are hesitant, afraid, reluctant to go deep into some of these conversations because what they're hearing is shaking the very foundation of I am a good person. And so they back out of the conversation because like, no, well, what do you, what, no, no, I am a good person. And the whole key is this isn't a good nation. My ancestors were not considered human. This goes beyond you trying to defend your goodness as an individual. And we have to be able to look at the collective trauma that our nation has encountered. If you've ever worked with a child who, um, witness domestic violence in their home, but were not directly, um, violence wasn't perpetrated against them. They are still so traumatized. Hearing the things that were happening on the other side of that door and not being able to stop it, seeing their siblings being brutally beaten, even if it didn't happen to them, they are still impacted. Racism is not a black person issue. It's not a it's not a Latinx issue. It's not it's it, it is everyone's issue because everyone has been impacted. It has collectively impacted how we view one another. The difference is systems were built upon one particular narrative. And I think when we talk safety and we talk about truly shifting, we have to get past this point of trying to be comfortable and make change. That's personal, interpersonal, and systemic and global. We don't get to make change and be comfortable. They're incongruent with one another. And as you're sharing that, LaShonda, I'm thinking about how do we have mental health in the midst of oppression and all kinds of layers of 
hundreds of years of things that have been built up and unjust and unfair and that have caused such trauma. How do you, what does mental health look like in the midst of all of that being part of the reality? That's good. Uh, I think the first thing that came to mind when you were saying that is we also have to look at our, our field in light of the institutional oppression. So psychology and therapy, it's all about pathologizing the other, right? So there is this mainstream way to exist and anything that falls outside of that is deviant or pathological. And so I think one thing is we have to look at mental health um, from the perspective of how much of institutionalized oppression has been put into what we consider to be the health part of mental health and the illness part of mental illness. And I think it requires us to really look at all systems from a critical eye. And when we start to say, well, this is the quote unquote right way to experience this, that that is coming from a very it's coming from a whiteness perspective. And I think that's key for people who are seeking mental health, you know, services for people who like us are in the field and, and practitioners of mental health services. Have we brought in systemic oppression into the counseling room by the sheer way we look at people, by the way we diagnose them, by the way we pathologize their response. I keep saying I need to look this up because it would be much more effective if I had the word. But I remember when I realized that there was an actual word that kind of pseudo science was made to diagnose slaves who tried to escape. So think about that. Beaten, raped, murdered your body used for labor, of which the benefit you would systemically be barred from benefiting from. And if you try to escape that, there was a diagnosis for you. This is the system through which the work we are doing has been built. And so to answer that question, like, you know, what, what does that look like? Man, it's so different because we don't have a genuine perspective of true good mental health and wellness. If we don't look at the full system and how we have come to have that. And so what I really enjoy about Pia Melody's model in developmental and relational trauma therapy is one, I don't diagnose. I'm in private practice. I don't have to. It's not connected to pay. I don't ever plan to. But it's also not about pathologizing anything. It's not about saying, oh, here's the disorder or here's what's wrong. We're saying, how did you get here? What are the lived experiences you've had that that caused this response to be the best one that your brain and body could come up with? to help you stay safe and alive. And I think that's a totally different conversation than some of the other methods that are out there, which is why I'm so heavily drawn to it, because it takes away the pathologizing of this is what's wrong with you and let's fix it. And this is saying you are having a completely acceptable response to whatever situation you're in. When we decontextualize a person's response, then it leads way for judgment. 
But when we truly try to understand what a person has gone through and been through and survived, then we lean in with compassion. Wow. Now that's strength. That, that right there, that's resilience. Okay. All right. Now, how do we help your body realize that you're not in that same environment every day? How do we give that part of you a break instead of, oh, you need to fix that. It's wrong. And I think we as clinicians, and I'm going to go ahead and extend this to all of our pastor friends and our faith leaders, the people who people come to, if we don't learn to look at it that way, then just like my niece, we'll be telling people that they're lazy and that they're this and that they're that and they need to be fixed when really their bodies are and brains are collaborating to keep them safe in the best way possible. I think the thing about Pia's model that I think is so powerful is the idea of getting your story straight and being able to trust what your reality is. You know, that core three is what is my reality? What am I noticing that I've experienced? And I am so with you, LaShonda, about like, I'm so frustrated, I'll say it this way, that the DSM in the title of the book is that there are disorders, <laughs> mental disorders. That doesn't make sense to me at all when we need to destigmatize and say there are things that people are experiencing and there's a reason why they're experiencing it. There's a, a deeper story to explore of what they understanding the nervous system and that reactivity to keep us safe, that it's not something's wrong with them. It's something has happened to them that they're trying to survive. I, I wish that we as mental health professionals could shift that understanding with some of our, our key leaders in the field of what trauma is and um, understanding complex developmental trauma. And that this is, this is what we're trying to heal from and work through that does make sense and that it needs to be heard and understood and received. I 100% agree with you. I also know that there is a lot of money in disorders yeah. and there is a lot of supremacy in disorders. Ugh, yeah. And so while that is so utopian and idealistic, uh, <laughs> I also yeah. know that the system that created the DSM was created so that they can continue to profit from and elevate what they were choosing to profit and what they were choosing to elevate. And so that's why the systems get so sticky, right? It's, it's why we have to look at people who have been through so much, especially those who've been through systemic oppression and look at their resilience and call it resilience for them. You know, the thing about the model is we help people get their story straight. But if we are swimming in oppressive thoughts, then we are trying to help them reorganize furniture based on our own biases. We have such, um, the, there is a perceived power differential in the therapeutic relationship. And so for me as a therapist, I am always trying to dismantle that, um, that power differential, that people come in with this idea that I have the answers, I, I got it, and, they, and I, I do my best to help my clients understand that I'm a Sherpa, I'm a guide. I've traveled this road and I can tell you, hey, we're coming up to a ditch. What do we want to do about this? 
right? I'm here with you either way. We want to go around it. We want to turn, what do we want to do? So I'm just kind of guiding people. I don't have the answer. And I think when we are set up with the power differential that one person has the answer, then their answer becomes what that person then reorganizes their story around. It's what happened with our parents, right? Our parents had the ultimate narrative or our caregivers. And so, so much of what we came to know was what we learned through them. Even if we chose to do the opposite, even if we said, nope, you're full of crap, (laughs) everything you say, I'm gonna do the opposite, their narrative still informed ours. And so getting the story straight, which I love, which is looking at these things and, and, and being curious about it, stepping in and saying, that's what you were told, I wonder. But that can be so damaging if the people who are helping people get their story straight still view that person somewhere implicitly as less than human. If someone is viewing a person implicitly as less than, that is going to influence their guiding that person into getting their story straight. And so, no, I'm with you, which is why I don't use the DSM, which is why, you know, I I purposely choose knowing that I have to do other ways to make my services accessible to some people, but that is one form of oppression I refuse to bring into my clinical practice um, because it was specifically created to oppress, even if those aren't the words that they use because I mean if they use those words on the cover you know people might be a little reluctant to use it but instead of calling it you know the the diagnostic and statistical manual of oppression we'll just call it the manual of disorders and and that's okay right (laughs) when the pathologizing and the disordered language is a language of oppression and so yeah it's deep yeah for sure so many layers any closing thoughts we want to go through before we wrap things up? This has been thoroughly um, educational. It's been so easy to talk with you, LaShonda, because... Thank you. I think that's one of my major goals in life is to bring things in a way that is accessible to a lot of people. Um I I wish I could remember who said this to me. I want to give credit to my 10th and 12th grade English teacher, uh, Ruth Siosin. Um, It could have been her, maybe it was someone else, but hey, you don't need to use a dollar word if a five cent word will do it, right? (laughs) You know, sometimes it's like, you know, hey, but let me be fair. Uh, Julie and I were talking about this before we recorded. Part of my upbringing is I never thought I was stupid. Like there was not part of my narrative, right? Um, Always intelligent, always all these things, right? So I understand that woven into my understanding of who I am is that I'm 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 an intelligent person. I'm not dumb. What that's done for me though, is it has made me unafraid to make mistakes in front of people. So I might lose a word I was gonna say in the middle of a training. I could be training 500 people and I'd be like, oh my goodness, what is that word? I hate when that happens what was I saying? Or I might say a word wrong and be like, wait, no, that's not how you say that. Right. I can do that because my value is not hinged upon what if they see me slip now frantic over what I'm going to wear. 
to make sure that my bulges aren't sticking out, that's a whole different story. <laughs> that's part of my drama story. But this idea, so what I can appreciate about the resilience I've built is I want to say it in ways that people understand it because I don't have to use big words to sound smart because that's just not something I'm trying to overcome. And I want to normalize that, that it doesn't make me better than anybody. It's just one of those lanes that worked for me. And I truly believe that it's a gift. I acknowledge it as a gift. And so part of that is I don't, I don't necessarily have to work towards it. And the reason I say that is because I find myself in positions where people want to compare themselves to me. Oh my God, I don't say things like you say them. I'm not as good as you. And what I will always say is, girl, you don't want to go through the trauma I had to go through to become who I am. So let's hone in on your gifts because you have them. We don't have to look at mine. I don't have to look at Julie's. Sarah, yours are different. But when we start to help people understand that they are valuable just as they are and that their value doesn't have to look like someone else's, that really can free people up to be who they were intended to be. And they didn't even know that was an option because their whole life they've been trying to be somebody else. Ah, hello, that's my story. <laughs> Once I realized that there was an opening for a Shonda in the world, that there was this space for a LaShonda who looked just like me, sounded just like me, thought the way I thought. And like no one had taken that role. Someone already took the role of Brene Brown and Oprah Winfrey and all these other people that I was like, oh my God, I got to be that. But then I was like, there's an opening right here. And man, it fits. Perfect. I have been freer since then than I ever have been. And for the record, I learned all of that through Pia's model. <laughs> well, we like to close our episodes with gratitude where each person kind of focuses on something they're thankful for. And just recently we started a new uh, tradition to add to that is an affirmation. So a gratitude and an affirmation, whoever wants to jump in <laughs> free floor. You know, you said something here, um, LaShonda, that's an affirmation, or I believe to be an affirmation, but there is no right way to experience this, just as there's no wrong way to experience this. That is incredibly freeing to me and um, takes away this, I sh should experience it this way, the stigma of, well, I didn't experience it this way, so it's wrong, or, or this is the way I should experience it, so it's good. And that's something that, you know, is part of my own trauma struggle um, journey. So there is no right way to experience this um, is my affirmation. And then my gratitude, I'm going to try to mean this with sincerity. I really do appreciate technology. I am grateful that we can record this way and be in separate cities and neighborhoods. Um, so I will choose gratitude instead of throwing my computer out the window. I love that reframe. <laughs> um, I can certainly share. Um, one, I have a tremendous gratitude for meeting my cousin, Julie. So I always conceptualize those of us who do Pia's models, like Pia's grandma. And for me, Rick and Jan are mom and dad. And so, you know, we're Pia's grandparents. And there are tons of people who are doing the work that we just haven't met. And so when I meet a sibling or a cousin or someone doing the work, it's almost like a family reunion. So I have a tremendous amount of gratitude for you, Julie, for the invitation. And then by proxy meeting Sarah, 
Um, I do believe people come into our lives for, for a reason, even if we don't know what it is. And I know that my life is, is, has been impacted for the good because I've met you too. Um, and as an affirmation, um, I will say, keep using your voice, whoever it is, whoever you are, um, as much as people kind of compliment me on my voice, there was a large period of time where I didn't use it because I was afraid that people would disconnect from me, that I would say the wrong thing. Um, and, and so I didn't use my voice and, and not even being funny, but can you imagine the world without my voice? I can now say that and say, no, the world needs my voice, not because I'm anything more special than anyone else, but because I exist. And so if you're listening, use your voice. It matters more than you would ever know. And you won't begin to know sometimes until you use it. And then you have people tell you how important it is and it'll give you strength to keep using it. I think my gratitude is learning more about uh, how to be in our bodies, how to integrate all this awareness. Um, I'm so thankful for just the last few months of awakening, of being able to hear and listen and understand in ways that I couldn't before. And that's not the sense of arrival. It's definitely a sense of process. Um, but I'm so grateful for it. I feel like I can't imagine not having had that and wanting to continue on in that journey. So I think with that, I think the affirmation being that I can heal, I can grow, um, I can keep on learning, keep on growing, just the process in that I think is so powerful. And LaShonda, I'm so thankful that you have been with us today. And just, it is so fun to meet fellow people. I think slowly but surely we're exposing more and more people to Pia's model and how life-changing it can be. And so if you're listening today and you don't really know what we're talking about, check out more of our episodes as well as LaShonda. I don't know if you want to do a shout out for your podcast. You're welcome to as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so the Labors of Love podcast, anywhere where you stream and get your podcast. Um, similar to this very conversational, I bring on guests and I ask them, what's their labor of love? There are tons of people doing tons of awesome things in our communities, and sometimes we don't know they're there. Um, but I do also have uh, one of my episodes was specifically about developmental and relational trauma, which talks about the model. And I talk about it every episode. I can't not talk about it because it's just infused in who I am. Um, but yeah, definitely feel free to check out the podcast. That's awesome. I thought it was so funny. The one episode that I guess it was when we interviewed uh, Jan Bergstrom on Off the Beaten Path and Samuel's comment was like, he doesn't know who are the big wigs in the field and, and who's lesser known. And so he's like trying to come up with, you know, wow, Pia Melody must be the most famous person. And I'm like, it's because I mention it all the time. Like I'm living it. I am using it in therapy to help support people and their growth. And it's just powerful work. So I think it's great that more people can learn about it and um, have their lives changed by it too. So that's a beautiful thing. 
So thanks everybody for listening today and for joining us. And we are so glad to have you be part of this community. Feel free to reach out to us um, through our Facebook page, through Instagram, or through email at Community Roots. Bye.